my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Heather Polivka. She is the CEO and advisor of Heather P Solutions. Heather is a trusted business advisor, accelerating the growth and success of progressive small to mid-sized businesses and their leaders through practical leadership, employee performance, and thriving workplace cultures. Heather's methodology has been masterfully crafted with over a decade's worth of experience transforming people, processes, and profits of Fortune 10 organizations and businesses of all sizes. She unites marketing and HR expertise to craft authentic employer brands, cultivate healthy workplace cultures, and improve employee engagement and develop strong people leadership as well. So uh, I, I'm certain that we're going to dig into your leadership philosophy and, and just have a conversation on leadership. But first, let me, uh, let me thank you for coming on the show and having this conversation with me. I, I really appreciate it. And um, uh, we'll just start at the beginning. Um, that sounds good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, where were you born and raised? And, and, you know, what was your early life like? Yeah, well, I am currently based in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. And I was born here. But I was not necessarily raised here, at least not for my entire life. Um, my parents were very young parents, um, you know, teen pregnancy. <laughs> and my dad joined the Air Force. And so almost immediately, we traveled throughout bases on the East Coast of the state. Um, he served overseas, and my mom and I stayed stateside. Um, so I had young parents. Um, I had a father who, you know, was away serving our country and, you know, my mother working and then going to school. So I also saw, you know, the, a version of a single mom, although she wasn't single, who was working and putting herself through college and taking care of me, you know, all, all at the same time. So a lot of that developed a lot of, you know, grit and I think perseverance and then as we would move from base to base, you, you have to get to know people and meet people. Um, so I could turn an accent on or turn it off depending upon what region of the country I was in. Not even intentionally, you know, you're just a kid and you, you absorb that. So when my dad uh, left, the, left the service at that time, we were living in Alexandria. My mom had worked her way up to serving in the White House. Um, so pretty extraordinary. And we then moved back to Minnesota and that's, you know, where I attended high school. And then I went away from my undergraduate school to Miami of Ohio, where again, I didn't know anyone, but of course that didn't scare me because 
I was used to moving new places and not knowing anyone and moved back to Minnesota. And then I went away to Purdue to get my graduate degree and moved back to Minnesota. So the joke that I make is that I am half Minnesotan and half the rest of the country. <laughs> are, are you an only child? I'm the oldest child. So the next one didn't come along for seven years. <laughs> we, we, I had some, some good time alone with, with mom in particular, but also, um, you know, my grandparents, my mom's parents uh, were really integral to my life. I spent the summers with them at, you know, their cabin. I spent spring breaks with them, shopping for Easter dresses and stayed with them for uh, Christmas. So they were also a big part of my, of my upbringing. Who would you say the most influential person in, in your life was like, say in, in high school? Yeah, I would actually say it would be hard to pick between my mom and my grandmother, um, two strong women. I mean, my grandmother was a stay-at-home mom, but make no mistake, she ran things, you know, <laughs> she ran things. And she also, um, an expression for her of caring for people was entertaining and cooking. You know, that's how she showed love and care. And she taught me how to cook. And to this day, it's one of those things that, you know, soothes my spirit, um, brings me a sense of calm and peace. And it is a self-expression. That's how we entertain all the time, my husband and I. And people go, how can you entertain so much? And I'm like, are you kidding? I get to show love for my community. And I learned that 100% from my grandmother with all the time that I spent with her. My mom was also, though, um, to watch someone, if there was any moment, like in college, if I wanted to complain, it was hard. All I had to do is remember my mom was essentially operating like a single mom, working full time, going to college and raising a kid. And that would shut my mouth so quickly. <laughs> um, and then she was also the first female executive in many of the companies she worked in. She started her own business. So my mom was a huge influence in, in my career of seeing what was possible. And to this day, she's actually on my advisory board for my business because I so respect her as a human and as a businesswoman. So I would say grandma and mom, can't you? Sorry. <laughs> and what influenced the, uh, the choice of universities for you? Mm, good, yeah. <laughs> So um, my undergrad, my dad was a very, you know, being a military guy, there's, there's like a certain order and a way you know, do things and, you know, we're going to be on a plan and execute the plan. So at the beginning of the junior year, and now I'm going to date myself because that was pre-internet, pre-everything, he bought me one of those thick books that used to exist, which was the list of all the colleges in, in the country. And at the beginning of junior year, he's like, you better start looking through this. And so being my father's daughter, I was like, I need criteria. I need criteria for where I'm going to go to school. <laughs> and so I developed this list that even now I'm kind of impressed that I thought of these things. Like I wanted to make sure it had, um, it wasn't just people from that state attending, that it was going to have people from a variety of geographies. 
I want to make sure if I was going to move and be meeting new people that it was the kind of campus where people lived on campus the first year and it wasn't one of those where everyone leaves on the weekend. Um, obviously, I wanted it to be strong in my course of study, which was business. So there were a number of things uh, of factors and I narrowed down this list and I kid you not, I chose my college unseen. I had never been there nothing, but it fit all the criteria. <laughs> and I applied and for whatever reason, it became my first choice. Um, and I got in and once I got in, it's like, okay, that's, that's where I'm going. So that's, that's how I selected my undergrad. And it's um, interesting to me that it just wasn't even a concern or a thought or a consideration about the fact that I was going to move, you know, a couple states away, and not know anyone. And then my graduate degree, uh, when I was applying, I was applying mostly to Big Ten uh, MBA programs, although not exclusively, um, ones that were ranked at the time all in the top 20. And, you know, in Minnesota, um, I was going to get in-state tuition, but two th interesting things happened. The University of Illinois, which is one that I applied to, they offered me a scholarship. And I'm like, sold, you know, like, I had paid off any under, undergrad, and so I'm like, pay for my graduate school, I'd love that. But then Purdue accepted me, and they also offered me a scholarship. And what was interesting is at the time, the Purdue MBA program was known for being like the quant jocks, like it was one of the most rigorous, and it was going to involve a lot of engineers who were coming to Purdue to get their master's in business. And uh, it was known for being tough. It was called the boot camp of the MBAs. And there was something about that because I'm a marketer by trade. And I thought, first of all, as a marketer, if I can learn how to like speak the language and interact with people who come at business with a very different mindset, i.e., you know, the engineering and the operations mindset, that'll make me a better leader, number one. And then number two, the fact that it intimidated me was probably proof that that's the one I should choose. So it was this, um, so I, I checked what was essentially a full scholarship offer at Illinois and took a partial one at Purdue. And I think that's, you know, I mentioned this sort of grit and resiliency, you know, earlier in my life. I think that's what really played out there saying anything that scares me is probably the very thing I need to take on. It seems like a, a very enlightened way of uh, decision making for, for somebody that's just, you know, starting out. You go to conferences to, to get people to coach you to start thinking like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> After your MBA, where did you where did you start your career at? Yeah. So while I got my MBA, so I, I, since we're just storytelling here, we'll start. So we get, I get there to the first week at Purdue, right? And they say, look to your left and look to your right. And one of you is not going to be here, you know, cause that was sort of the people who couldn't make it through the rigor of the program. And I looked to my left and there was, you know, already someone who was working for like a fortune 100 company and la la la. And I looked to my right and similar thing. And I was like, oh no, it's going to be me. <laughs> Uh, but again, that grit and perseverance kicked in. And one of the things that I led my second year was I led a benchmarking study because Purdue was interested in further increasing in the MBA rankings. 
so I led a program to benchmark other top MBA programs and make recommendations to the um, Craneret School of Management board and the alumni board about what we needed to do to get there. Well, from that, it was basically what it turned into was a great audition with a lot of companies for job offers. <laughs> so I fortunately had a lot of choices from companies that were actively recruiting. But again, I took the path, path less traveled. Uh, Target Corporation, which is located here in Minneapolis, reached out and we did a phone interview. And I'm a little embarrassed. You've just given me credit for my decision making. But they invited me up for in-person interviews. And I swear the only reason I took it was a chance to come home and see my family. I didn't prepare for the interview. I Nothing. Because I was just like, oh, I'll get the plane ride and see my family. And then I got here and I did my day of interviewing and I'm in like the second or third interview and I'm like getting really excited because they really empower at the time their program, they really empowered people, um, the investment and the development and skills. And I was looking less for I want this job and more for an experience that would help me grow and stretch. And, and empower me. And that's what they were all about. And by the end of the day, I was kicking myself that I had not prepared for this interview because now I wanted them to want me. <laughs> and it was very unusual to come out of Purdue, which was heavy in operations um, and strategic management and think about going into retail. But Target made me an offer and I just loved the empowerment of it so much. So I was literally the only person who went to like a consumer goods retailing establishment out of, out of Purdue. So it was a little, it was a path less travel, but then again, that brought me back to Minnesota again. How long were you uh, working in the corporate world before you actually made the decision to start your own firm? Yeah, great question. Almost, um, almost 25 years. Um, I spent a good 10 years with Target. Um, I left Target, a former boss of mine from Target went to another mid-sized company and I loved working for her. And she said, Heather, hey, they don't have any product marketing function. Plus I need, so, so I need someone to set it up and help turn this business around. And we also want to start online sales. And so I need someone to open up that distribution channel. And I was all up for the challenge. And so I knew I liked the work. I knew I liked my boss. So I followed her to this company and I got there and it was toxic. I mean, it was just, it was a really bad work experience <laughs> and many examples, but mostly things that they could get sued for exceptionally. But I'm glad I had that experience. So I am getting, you're like, wait, we're only a decade in. <laughs> had I not had that bad experience, it would not have had me open to the idea when United Health Group recruited me and they wanted to bring a marketer in to have a consumer centric mindset brought into their talent space. And had I not had this really bad experience where I was coming home at night and I was drained and I was unhappy and Literally, my new husband at the time said to me, do you want to think about getting another job? Like, he's like the person who comes home at night, you know, that's not the same person who leaves in the morning. And that experience really 
taught me the impact that our work environment and culture has on who we get to be as individuals and how fulfilled we are, not just in the work, but when we go home at night, do we show, can we show up as our best selves to our loved ones? Uh, do we have any energy left to pursue our hobbies and interests? And so that was one of those, another, the path less taken, because that wasn't typical for a marketer to go into that field. And I had a wild, awesome ride for 11 years with United Health Group, reporting in the chief talent officer and the chief marketing officer, getting to do all this work around culture and employer brand and employee engagement and, um, and leadership. And so I rode that wave for 11 years. And then I'm like, okay, we've quadrupled in size. It's really big. And, you know, I worked out of the bedroom next to mine when my mom started her business. And I always thought at some point I was going to be like her. And after 11 years at United Health Group and having a great ride, I had had the experiences and built up the skills and maybe even the confidence I needed to go out on my own. So that's, uh, that's, I left in 2019 and thank goodness I traveled a little bit and then, and then launched my current, uh, current business where I work with small and mid-sized businesses on culture, employee engagement and leadership development. So that's how I found my path. Looking back on your professional career, free on your own, uh, what are some of the most valuable lessons you learned that, that you took with you that is helping you develop other people and other businesses? Yeah, good question. Okay. The first thing that I've learned, first, you know, I explained to you how I selected my college based upon criteria, right? And that ended up working out well for me. So I definitely have a very logical mind about things, but the other thing I've learned is to trust my gut. Because I've already described a few times where I took the path a little less traveled. And each one of those times, I really listened to myself. And like, regardless of what I think I'm supposed to do or, you know, what is the general path, what feels right to me. And every time I follow that, it's never led me wrong. I mean, I, it doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes in that process. And, but I can own those mistakes because I chose it 100%. It's the times I haven't listened to that, um, that that's when all of a sudden I would lead to like burnout or I knew something was off, but I wasn't listening to myself. So that would be the first thing is as I reflect back on my career, I can see where I listened to myself and how it's got me here and where it didn't, which also got me here, but maybe it took the more painful scenic route instead of <laughs> instead of the direct route. So that would be one lesson. The second one is that, um, and especially in my work now in working with first time and new managers, it doesn't matter. There are really, there are a lot of companies, in fact, most companies of all different sizes, all different industries, and yet most of them do not have really good manager development. And I learned that because I had my own trial and error. There are times I really messed stuff up. And my first manager job, all of a sudden I had someone, I'm, I stepped into the job and they're like, oh, by the way, they're on a performance improvement plan. So not only did I have no training, 
no skills, but now I'm managing through a performance improvement plan with very little guidance and support. And so I, I always tap into that feeling of being that new and first time manager. And my experience is not unique. It is the prevalent one. And it's just, it's not fair to the new managers because oftentimes they're high performers that you've now promoted. And then all of a sudden they feel like failures overnight. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to the people who report to them because they're the ones who have to, you know, take the bruises and the bumps from a manager who's learning through trial and error with no guidance and support. And you know what? It's really bad business. Like it's really bad business. So I, that's another lesson I look back on and reflect on how it felt to be doing that trial and error and knowing. I mean, there are moments I look back and I'm super proud of myself as a people leader. And especially in my last role, I developed such a strong, high-performing team that we had the lowest turnover of any marketing team in the company. Like people wanted to be on my team, like super proud. I just wish I hadn't needed to go through the 10 years of trial and error <laughs> to get there. And, and the people who were generous and gracious enough to be with me in that journey. So that would be another thing. And then also that it really sucks when you don't have a great leader. Yeah. That would be the other lesson I took with me. And I'm just, my why for what I do is I say that everyone deserves to thrive at work and no one should have to survive work for a paycheck. So whether it's consulting with businesses to help create the kind of work cultures where people get to thrive and business thrives as a result, or it's the work that I do with new and first time managers via the Awesome People Leader Program so that they can show up as the best version of themselves, their first manager job and not 10 years in, it's all so that they can help their own employees thrive. That's my why is that people should get to thrive because work for many of us is a form of self-expression. And so why not be able to show up and contribute your best at doing something you really want to do? That's really what the whole great reshuffle is about is people saying, yeah, that's what I want. And that's what I'm going to chase. And I'm not going to settle anymore. Well, can you talk a little bit about your your development program for, for new managers? Yeah. Yeah, this came out of, um, so as I mentioned, I spent 11 years and I worked across all of HR uh, in, my, in my role. So I'm a marketer by trade and training, but yet spent 11 years across every area of, of HR. Um, and as I've been working with small and mid-sized businesses, uh, I could see, especially as we're trying to embed culture and helping to show managers like frontline and second line managers, here's how you lead through the values. Because so many companies, they got their values on the website and don't those look pretty and they sound great. And then if you go and you check their Indeed or your gla their Glassdoor reviews, there is like, there is not a connection. <laughs> And so one of the things that I do when I work with companies is actually show not just the leaders, but the frontline managers, this is how you lead through the values. We've even given them little like prefix a la carte menus of activities and actions for them to take and choose from. So they're still empowered as a leader to choose what they do from that list, but they're actually given a list of here's what that looks like. And they loved it. They loved it. They ate it up. 
And so my clients kept asking me, well, can you do that with the other things that our frontline managers are supposed to know? And then I discovered it's called the people leadership skills. So our program is, we addressed a lot of things because I was like, if I'm going to go and do this, I want to do it right. And I looked across the market for what's available. And by the way, there's not a lot available for new and first time managers. The first thing is, I also work with a neuroleadership coach. And the first thing is our brains can only absorb 20 minutes of content. And when you think about most trainings, most of them are an hour minimum. So I was like, first of all, this entire thing needs to be micro lessons. So we cover all of our topics in 10 minutes or less. So it is distilled down. We curate from over 150 sources for each topic overall, but each topic is distilled down into what does a new manager really need to know and understand. And we cover that in a three to five minute video and a handout that's more like a marketing collateral piece with here's what you need to know, here's the actions to take, and here's how to apply it. It is, it is not some HR white paper on the, on the topic. And then because I was a functional line leader, we do give them ways to apply it right away. Not like some major project, but quick actions they can take to put it into, into effect in their leadership. So the idea is they've spent 10, maybe 15 minutes max on absorbing new content, and then it's about putting it into practice. And by the way, we deliver this all via either desktop or mobile device, because the way we work today, not everyone's sitting at a desktop. And so it is mobile, it is actionable, it's practical, and it's very bite-sized. We also then, um, they, are, they can go and access any topic at any time they want, but we do feed them one topic per week. Because my idea is a lot of leadership programs, you go in, it's like drinking from the fire hose. And this used to happen in one of my companies, we'd send our new managers away and they'd come back after two days and their eyes were glazed over. And they're like, they look like they've just been through a wind tunnel or something. And you're like, how are you? What did you learn? And they can't remember any of it because it just was so overwhelming. So instead, you know, they can access what they need, but we drip them a topic each week. So the idea is here's a drip of a, of a topic. Let that absorb and apply it. And the next week is the next drip and the next drip and the next drip. And we support them for an entire first year. And we also have an online community where they can ask questions. It is private and locked down. They can ask questions and not feel stupid and get answers from me within one business day, but also other managers in the program. Here's what I've tried. Here's what's worked for me. And then we do monthly calls. And in the monthly calls, the only agenda is they show up and they talk about what they're dealing with. What tools have they used that have worked? Where are they stuck? And we will bring up the, the modules right away and show them a tool and you know say, does this feel comfortable? Do you want to practice now? And then they go off and apply it. And I love seeing the light bulbs go off and have them feel excited about really what is an honor to be a leader and to serve and support the people underneath them and feel like they can be successful doing that. And there are many companies that are enrolled in this program that owe me some retention bonuses too, by the way. <laughs> so that's the program. It's, all, it's 50 plus topics, micro lessons, mobile, and an online community of support. 
and and then can you talk a little bit about the um, the the program that you have to help organizations uh, really improve their culture? Yeah, that is less of a program, although I will give a shout out to Fearless Cultures because I love their approach to it. Um, it's what I do is I actually go in and I talk to the leadership team to get an understanding of where are they at? Um, because it's one thing, for example, if you're a high growth startup and so you're scaling and then maybe you just got funding and in this next year, you're going to hire more people than exist in your company today. <laughs> and so how does your culture scale with that? Because culture is also how we work, how we communicate, et cetera. And that looks very different when you're a startup office of 15 versus an office of 150. There's structures in that that need to be put in place. So startup is one way. Another thing is merger and acquisitions. You know, are we truly merging cultures or is it really like one is supposed to just like absorb the other culture? Or maybe it's a team in transition. Uh, it's an executive team. Maybe there's been a new CEO or they've changed over some of the executive team. And so it's really about charting the path forward. And then right now, I would say there's a number of companies that I'm working with that are like, we, we need to evolve our culture because we're also evolving how we work. We're not asking everyone to necessarily come to the office Monday through Friday, eight to five. It's going to be hybrid or whatever. And so how do we evolve to fit with that? Um, so that's why first it's like an intake process to kind of discover where they're at and where we're trying to go. And then I work with the executive team so that we can design with sort of the end in mind. What is it we're creating? And it's, it goes beyond mission and values, which are important, but most companies miss defining the behaviors that reflect those values. And one of my favorite examples I use is a lot of the um, Fortune 500, one of the top values is innovation. Well, one leader could think that innovation looks like a competitive exercise, like the best idea wins, which sometimes can turn into a little bit of the Lord of the Flies kind of thing. <laughs> but another leader, if there's no behaviors assigned to it, could think that, hey, it's a collaborative exercise. I should bring in lots of different points of view and we'll create together. Both of those are innovative. We're going to create innovation, but which one is appropriate for your work environment? And when values don't get defined in terms of behaviors, that's how you end up with a company that people think this one leader is great or they don't want to work for this other leader. That's how you get more variance. So one of the things I'm diligent about is that we define the values in terms of behaviors, what we're going to reward, what we're going to um, uh, recognize and also what we're not going to tolerate. And it's all in service of the culture we want to create, which is in service of our business strategy and our, our mission and vision. Then we de design some of the more emotional aspects of the culture, like, you know, feedback and uh, safety, psychological safety. Then there's also the operational aspects, like how do we make decisions? How do we communicate? And also, how are we going to address conflict? What does conflict resolution look like for us inside of these values? So once we shape all of that, um, it's almost like we've just defined a new measuring stick. And no matter what, even the best leaders in the world, when you, when you have a new measuring stick, 
no matter what, you're going to see that some places where maybe the way I led didn't align with this new measuring stick. So I have an opportunity to grow. I have an opportunity to maybe evolve in, in how I lead. So we have the executive team make personal commitments of how they are going to, what they're going to work on, what they're going to evolve um, to themselves, but also to their peers to meet that new measuring stick. And that's really the start. We need to have the leaders show some vulnerability in that respect to make it okay for everyone who reports to them to be willing to acknowledge their own opportunity for growth. Um, so we start there and then we, we start cascading it through, through the organization and the, the embedding it into an organization takes a while. It takes a lot of like missteps, um, catching ourselves. <laughs> it also takes, you know, over time, you want to give people the, the right to practice and to make mistakes and clean it up. But then at some point, then you have to shift it into, okay, we've had our practice time. Now it's time to hold accountable. And that's when you have to start getting into what are we going to recognize? What are we going to reward? Who's going to get promoted? Who's not? because it doesn't work inside of you know, our, our value and measuring stick. And eventually you put that into your performance goals, et cetera. And as you, if we all stay true to that, then you actually end up realizing the very culture that was designed from the very beginning. But it takes a lot of willingness of trial and error, uh, humility and willingness to grow and growth mindset. Um, and then at some point that does need to transition into accountability, that this is what we will recognize and this is what we won't tolerate. And then we got to make decisions that back that up. Because I think we've all worked in companies where they say they value this, but then, you know, they, they keep that around that person who isn't really doing that, but they deliver really good sales results or whatever. So we'll keep them around. You got to make those tough calls. And invariably, if people, if companies are willing to make those tough calls, they find that while they thought they couldn't get by without that one star, since I said sales, salesperson, they actually find if you remove a toxic element, someone who wasn't really living the values, it actually creates space for everyone else who is, and there's opportunity for overperformance there. Um, but you have to be willing to take that risk. So that's the process. But the long tail of that is a good year, year plus. I mean, I read your bio and all that. They like, you know, I know you're really familiar with what good leadership looks like and probably also sometimes with what it doesn't, <laughs> but the importance of leadership to mission. Like there, you, you have no shot really of, of succeeding on mission if you don't have strong leadership and strong leadership looks like people who want to follow you, not people who are operating out of fear of what happens if they don't. And unfortunately we have a lot of, there's been in business um, for a long time and, and there are studies that show this pre-pandemic that you know the, the top down, not in a healthy way, like I'm more micromanager and I've got to try to control you and operating and leading people out of fear, it will produce results, but they're not sustainable results. And then you consider the world. And so we even knew then that being people-centric, understanding your team members, who they are, 
the strengths that they bring to the table and how to maximize those strengths in service of the team and the mission. We've known that that produces better business results, sustainable business results, and high-performing teams. We know that really good leaders provide a lot of feedback. And most people hear feedback and they just think the, the, the negative kind, like the redirecting kind. But really good leaders use a lot of positive reinforcing feedback to let you know what you're doing right and what you're doing well to produce the outcomes you want. In fact, they use it in like a four to one ratio. So all of a sudden the time they tell you like, if you make this adjustment, that will work better. It doesn't feel like it's threatening your very existence of career success. It's like someone who's in your corner and wants you to succeed for your own sake, but also for the team and, and for the business. So we've known that, but the world we're in right now with what everyone has been dealing with <laughs> more than ever calls for leaders who are human centric and really in service of their people. Like what hurdles do they need removed? What resources do they need access to? And how do I support them to show up as the best version of themselves? Because that's how we win. It's incredible to me that there are organizations that struggle with this. And I'm sure in, in your career, you've dealt with um, executive teams where uh, they may employ your services, but it's lip service. Mm -hmm. Where they're, you know, they're comfortable with how things are because they're in power. Yeah. But they feel like, well, we got to make it look good. So mm -hmm. how do you get through to those people that to help them understand that the, the return on investment of actually doing the work is huge? Yeah, I wish I could say I'm always successful in that, but I'm really, I'm not. Um, <laughs> it's because invariably in those cases, there's gonna require something of me. There's something I'm going to need to shift to, um, to make that a reality, right? And generally, if you've made it to you know, the pinnacle of leadership, there's a way that you've done that and you've been successful at it. And like all of us as human beings, you know, if I pull this lever and I get cheese, I'm gonna keep pulling that lever and getting cheese. <laughs> I mean, that's, we're human beings. And then at some point you keep pulling that lever and you're not getting cheese, but mostly as human beings, what we do is we just keep pulling that lever more and more and more and more. Think about when a pop won't come out of a pop machine, you know, like you just keep pressing the button, like it's going to produce a different result. So I have a lot of um, empathy uh, for that humanity of this is the way I've been successful through decades of my career. Um, this is how I know how to produce success. And so it is really scary and intimidating to think about doing something else because I'm not sure I can produce those results. And so while I have empathy for that, um, it still doesn't negate the need for the evolution and the change. And I try to understand what's important to them and what they value, because until the pain is great enough as human beings, we won't make a change. I mean, that's, that's really 
what happened. There were a lot of people surviving in their jobs before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, when we're dealing with so much, people went, okay, on top of all of that, I'm going to deal with some boss who's going to be like, however to me, nope, I'm out, right? The pain became too great. And so I'll tell you about a conversation I had with a, a chief executive and they were talking about return to office and they basically wanted to just go back to how things were in 2019. But his business strategy required that he, you know, he needed, he wanted to win more government contracts. Um, so he needed additional people, period. But he also um, needed to have more representation from women and people of color and women in particular. And so I listened to him talk about his business strategy and how he's going to earn these government contracts and he needed people and he was having such a hard time, but he wanted everyone in the office. <laughs> and I just said to him, I go, I'm really confused. And he's like, what are you confused by? And I said, well, you know, first of all, I'm confused by the fact that you know that this is what you, you know, this is the talent you need to drive your business. And yet you're making decisions about the work experience that does not support this talent. He's like, I don't understand what you mean. And I went through and started listing, you know, for me, for women in particular, like daycare centers aren't open or up to full capacity. Senior care centers aren't open or up to full capacity. And I started going through the whole list of why we were seeing so many women, you know, leave corporations and start their own businesses because they're just so many balls. And while we'd like to think we're in a society where, you know, the grocery shopping and making dinner and distance learning was equal between the parents. The reality is it fell more onto women. And I go, you need to design a work experience that can support that, um, that at least it listens to that. Public transport isn't on their usual schedule or paths yet. And public transport is used more by women than men. Like it was just all of it. He goes, I wasn't aware of all that. And I go, you're not aware because you have exactly one female executive on your team. So that's, that's part of it. But then the second, so I said, you're actually making business decisions that does not support your business strategy. Forget about like, should you, everything I go, it's just not smart business. But I said, now let's talk about the second thing, which is your business relies upon your employees being innovative and bringing innovative ideas to your clients. He goes, absolutely. And I go, so it takes a constant growth mindset and learning and being willing to try things in a new way to do that. And he goes, of course. And I said, you probably run into clients that aren't really willing to do that. And he's like, no, and they don't see the benefits. I go, exactly. So where is your growth mindset in terms of how you lead now? <laughs> <laughs> and he was quiet for a while and he's like, I got it. <laughs> but you know, and that one turned out great, right? Because he, there was something in him that was willing to listen and look, but there are some who are, they're just not ready yet. And there's nothing I could say that could shift that for them. And it's not going to be until they start seeing this inability to serve their customers extend over an extended period of time. It's not until the decline of the business it's not until all of that happens that they're finally going, the pain is going to be great enough that they're going to be willing to try on and explore how they lead in a different way that creates a work environment where people want to be. And so 
you ask me how I do that. I'm, as you can tell, I'm a straight talker. I'm, you know, I'm horrible at poker, um, <laughs> but not everyone's ready to listen. And I have a lot of empathy for that, but it's also when you say people who want to hire and then they just want to do the lip service, those are not the people that I work with um, because I'm or action oriented. You know, I want to, the whole reason I'm doing this is I want to get in and I want to make a meaningful difference. And so if it's just going to be lip service, if they're not willing to be on the journey to look at, you know, what it looks like to lead in this environment and to create a work environment that people can thrive in, then they're not a good fit for me. And maybe I'll be a good fit for them when they are ready. Last question here. And it's hypothetical. Oh. <laughs> so just say you, you're, you're given a group of, of men and women and you're charged with developing them as leaders, but you're, what is the main focus? What, what do you feel is the most important thing to impart on this group of people mm -hmm. that can help them the most at becoming an effective leader? Great question. And my answer always, um, and so I know my answer and I'm excited by my answer and I'm going to tell you my answer, but it's not going to be the answer you think I'm going to say <laughs> or your listeners. Um, the basics of brain science. So here's why. Um, and it's actually one of the very first modules we do in our manager development program is we talk about how people can operate in the fight flight or freeze portion of their brain operating out of fear, right? Our brains are designed to keep us safe. That's what they do. And it doesn't matter if a bear is coming at us or you're walking into your boss's office thinking you're going to be fired. Our brain doesn't know the difference. Our brain is going to try to keep us safe and trigger a response. But when people are operating out of the fear response, and right now, again, with everything that's been going on in the world, everyone is just one step away from that from that fear response. Like everybody, you know, people are a little bit edgier and things trigger them more. Those are people right on the edge of that, that fear trigger response. Then we have a productivity zone of our brain, which is great for getting things done. It's like when you drive someplace and you don't really remember the drive because you do it so often and it's just like autopilot. That's like the productivity portion of your brain. Great for knuckling down and getting stuff done. Not great for innovation, problem solving, and collaboration, but really good for deep work that you know you know how to you need to invest in get done. But if you want innovation, problem solving, collaboration, you got to get people operating out of the reward response of their brain. That's like when we're operating our best. You know, ideas just like come into them, and then I can hear what you're saying, and I build upon it. And there's not that defensiveness there. It's like the magic. And we've all experienced that in our work at some point, right? So that's the very thing that I start with with leaders. Because if you don't understand the human brain, you got no shot at leading humans. And it helps explain why. In fact, I was talking to a chief technology officer. And I started with the brain science. And then we talked about recognition. And we also talked about feedback, which we talked about earlier, how using that positive reinforcing feedback in a four to one ratio to redirecting. Part of what that four to one ratio does is that one doesn't become scary. And that one feedback or redirecting you know, feedback doesn't become a trigger for the fright response. 
So I can actually hear that and I can actually do something with it. And after we got done with that training, the chief technology officer came to me and said, you know what, Heather, people have been talking to me for years about recognition and all this. And I kept wondering why I had to thank people for doing their jobs, because don't they get a paycheck? Like, you know, he goes, you're the first one to explain the science behind it to help me understand why it's important. Because if I want innovation, collaboration and problem solving from my team, then I have to be aware enough of where your brain state is at. And if needed, I got to move you into that reward zone so that I ultimately get what I want and need. <laughs> because it all of a sudden makes sense. Recognition is not some, you know, cushy, huggy, soft thing that like only weak people need. <laughs> it's actually something that is a critical lever in leading humans who have these brains that work better when we're in a reward response. And by the way, we have five times more receptors in our brain to trigger the fear response than we do the reward response. So that's why it takes more of that. So that is why that basic brain science. So this is my gift to all your listeners. I just gave them this, um, <laughs> but that's why I start there because it then starts to explain what happens and why we see a lot of behaviors and why, pe why people act the way they do in conflict why recognition is worth taking time to do. Um, it's just foundational because you can't leave, leave humans without it. You were absolutely right that that is not what I was expecting. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but <laughs> like I, I'm very well aware of the brain science, but I've never approached that as being the foundation, but that uh, it's always something that follows later on. Yeah. And what I, and what I've been teaching, you know, and, and, and that's how I explain how all this other stuff works. But if you start there, I mean, that's so brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, well, when I got it is when a lot of things clicked into place for me. You know, the minute I got brain science, I'm like, oh, that's why this works. Oh, that's why that doesn't work. Like all of a sudden everything clicked and it made sense. And I'm like, why don't we teach this at the very start? So that's what I do. It's just a, a little piece of one of the lessons that I do, but it's <clears throat> people follow the person that, that they view as a leader because they believe that they will be better for having followed them. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what you were just saying, that reward. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. one form of a reward. It is, but it's an important reward, right? And also you follow them because you believe you have something to learn and gain from them. You believe they're in your corner, like they want your success. Um, and yeah, maybe they want your success because it helps them achieve, you know, the end result or the mission, but still they want your success and they know you enough to know what that is. And yeah, I mean, those are, those are great leaders. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel is important to, to impart upon the audience before we wrap this up? Um, I think sometimes when it comes to culture, 
And I get it. It can seem like, well, if the senior leaders aren't aligned, what can I do? And you're right. I mean, in one way, that's correct. Like, you know, if I am a first line manager, I can't transform the whole company culture, you know, myself. Um, but I can do that within my team. I can lead my team in a way that I can look myself in the mirror at night when I go to bed and know that I did, I did right by my team and developed them and grew them and developed a high performing team such that does it start to have people go, how are you doing that over there? Share some of what you're doing. And um, so that's why it's worth it. Even if you might, if someone, one of your listeners might be someplace going, well, I'm not one of the top executives. I can't shape the culture by myself. And it's like, no, you can't shape the whole culture by yourself. But you can create a space within your team where people are valued and heard and seen and developed. And you can become that leader that other people want to be on your team. And you can be that leader that other people go, what's that secret sauce you're doing over there? So I would say not to get defeated if you're not at the top of the org chart, but do what you can within your scope of influence. And you might be surprised, you know, what seeds you plant that can create the future. Oh, if People want to get in touch with you, connect with you, um, employ your services. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, well, they can connect with me on LinkedIn for sure. They can also come to our website. You can go to either heatherpeacesolutions.com or awesomepeopleleaders.com. And either way, you can set up time with me and no obligation. I'd love to talk to you and find out like what it is that you were hoping to get out of the call, what it is you want. And if I'm not the right person, I will always point you in the direction of someone who can, who can support you. Because again, my why is that everyone gets to thrive at work. And if I can't help with it, I want to make sure you get what you need so that you can create that. So I will have links to your website in the show notes. And uh, I wish you all the best. And, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing with, with my audience. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.